In the Old Testament, the victories of Israel did not testify to their own military skill. The victories of Israel did not testify to their very clever strategies. The victories of Israel testify to the supremacy of Yahweh. That is the way to think about the encroaching enemies upon the Israelites and the surprising victories and turns of events that take place. The victories in the Old Testament testify to the supremacy of Yahweh. Think about the Exodus. Israel is in bondage to Egypt. What can they do to wrest themselves free from this captivity? They cannot do anything. They are dependent on the mighty hand and power of Yahweh who delivers them and who overcomes the Egyptian armies through various plagues and ultimately the crushing waters of the Red Sea. Israel went through on dry ground, not so the enemies of Yahweh. The wicked are destroyed and the people of God delivered. Does this testify to Israel's great military savviness? It does not. It testifies to the power and supremacy of Yahweh. Think about Elijah. He gathers with the prophets of Baal and they are going to build altars. And the one who prays and the God answers by fire shall show himself to be the true God. And the prophets of Baal, to no avail, go around and around in the morning hours and into the afternoon. They slice themselves, they chant all day long, and they offer different reasons perhaps as Elijah has stimulated their thinking of excuses or reasons why he might not have answered their calls yet. And then Elijah's turn comes. And he calls out to the living God who answers by fire from heaven. This does not testify to the strength of Elijah's altar or the uh, lack of strength in the prophets of Baal's altar. But rather to the supremacy of Yahweh over against the false idols of the day. When we read about Israel's victories in the Old Testament, our hearts should be stirred with the hope that Yahweh will vindicate his name in all the earth. These stories where the Lord delivers His people gives us a longing that all God's people would be ultimately delivered. And that when we see the wicked vanquished and their designs and ploys overcome, we long for God to deliver us from evil and to overcome all His adversaries. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15 by the Apostle Paul that Christ reigns at the right hand of God and He must do so as He puts all enemies under His feet. When we read about victories in the Old Testament, we should long for His promises to be fulfilled in us and through His people in the judgment of the wicked. I want us to notice these battles in Numbers 21, part of one we read about just a moment ago before we, heard, uh, before we prayed. And this morning, these battles will serve these larger purposes of what our hopes should be aiming for. And I want you to know two names in this text. Two rulers... Rulers, you need to know a man named Sihon and a man named Og. Sihon and Og. They are kings of the Amorites. Now, up on this map behind me, the Israelites have gone around Edom and they have gone around up where this Arnon River flows. And this is an area of the Amorites which is going to concern the kings that are present. They want to go farther. They want to, they want to go through this territory and beyond. This area right north of the Arnon River, bordering the northern part of Moab, this is taking them closer and closer to the promised land. 
How close? Well, the Dead Sea has a river, the Jordan River, that goes all the way up here, <laughs> and the Sea of Galilee, which would be about right here. There you go. Thank you, Jacob. <laughs> and the Sea of Galilee, and the land of Israel is here. The Israelites are very close, right around this area, and they're going to face a king, Sihon of Heshbon, and then in Bashan, King Og. Sihon and Og. What we notice about these locations is that they are very near the promised land, but they're not exactly inside of it. The land of Canaan has been promised them to the forefathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob carried those covenant promises. But here's going to be the surprise in the book of Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the book of Joshua. In the coming conquest under Joshua's leadership, the Israelite tribes will not just occupy lands within the Jordan River all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. They will have territory outside the Jordan River. That begins today. The acquiring of territories of these Amorites. The Amorites are, that's a name we've heard before as Bible readers all the way back to Genesis. In Genesis, God said to Abraham that your descendants are going to serve a nation uh, for a period of time, which would have been the Egyptian bondage for those centuries. But God says, I will bring them out in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And Abraham heard about this in Genesis 15, which is why when we read in Numbers 21 that Israel sends messengers to the Amorites, our eyebrows should raise and think, okay, so what will happen to these people who have been living in iniquity and idolatry before a righteous and holy God, has this now come to a time of judgment for them? Where the Israelites are is on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And when in their life as a nation, they're in the 40th year of their wilderness wandering, which gives us then not only a geographical but chronological closeness. We sense the imminence the imminence of what Joshua, who will succeed Moses, what Joshua will lead the Israelites into. The two victories today are not evenly distributed. The defeat of Sihon, right around the Arnon River, is verses 21 to 32. That's a substantial portion of the text. Og, who reigns in the region of Bashan, He gets three verses, verses 33 to 35. This is a very short text, so unevenly distributed. Let's look first at the defeat of Sihon. And notice how these things stir the hope of God to fulfill his promises, lead his people into their inheritance, and overcome his enemies. In verse 21, the Israelites sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites. And they said in verse 22, Let's pass, let me pass through your land. Let me sound singular. They're, they're giving a message as of one voice, a collective voice together. They are trying to speak as a nation. Let me pass through your land. We've heard this kind of language before. And the Edomites, which are below Moab, the Edomites refused to let the Israelites through. And we had heard their request. Let us pass through your land. Edom had earlier refused Israel's passage. They once again now say with this language, this time to uh, Sihon, let me pass through your land. And they're, they're a big people. They're not a small number. If they were to pass through somebody's territory, 
you can imagine the depletion of resources would be quite striking. And if you are a ruler in an area and you care about your people, you certainly care about your own, uh, your own uh, family and uh, court and administration, you want things to be upheld in your region. Not a people coming through like locusts in a field that are going to devour everything. They try to set his fears at, at, at bay. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. Because it would be a reasonable fear for a king to have that if this mighty nation is just going to come through, well, our vineyards are going to be trampled. And when we go to our fields the next morning, what's going to be left of them? They said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We will not even drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. Now, the king's highway is a passage geographically that essentially takes you through this area up north of, of the land of Canaan. It, is, it was a well-known place of travel. They say, listen, we're going we're gonna to stick to the express lane. That's what we're doing. We're not going this way and we're not going that way. We're going to stick on the main road that we know people travel called the King's Highway. That's our plan. Verse 23, Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. Well, once again, we have a refusal of passage. But then Sihon takes another step. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. This means the Amorites, led by King Sihon, have decided that not only is your answer no, we're going to follow it up with you're going to die. That, that's what they're saying now. And now the, the Sihon army, these Amorites, are going to fight against the army of Israel. But now something happens that wasn't characterizing their wilderness years. A victory. The enemies of Yahweh have aligned themselves against the people of Israel. And we're told in verse 24, Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword. And that's a, a singular way of talking about the corporate reality of the Israelites prevailing and perhaps to their own surprise. Because they were not a vastly professionally trained military crew. Instead, these Israelites gather together and prevail with the edge of the sword and take possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok as far as to the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong. Now, I just want you to notice here that uh, the Jabbok River is here and the Arnon is here. So if they have uh, overcome them in this Arnon area, this whole area with Heshbon here, this has been overcome Cities and villages succumbing to the might of Yahweh through Israel. And it's important that we phrase it that way. This is not the might of Israel. It's the supremacy of Yahweh once again demonstrated in this ancient Near Eastern region. In fact, we're told in verse 25, Israel took all these cities. Israel settled in all the cities of the Amorites in Heshbon and in its villages. Now, why was Heshbon such a big deal to even say as one of these geographical regions for the reader to know? In verse 26, Heshbon was the city of Sihon, the king of the Amorites. I think one way to imagine Heshbon's importance is that Heshbon is basically the capital of Sihon's rule. In other words, the Israelites have not only penetrated this region, have not only prevailed against other cities and villages where military might came out against them, but the very heart of the capital now belongs to Israel. Quite a turn of events. 
it tells us in verse 27, therefore, no, verse 26, for Heshbon was the city of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Now, here's something I need you to know about the Amorites that have just been defeated. See, this whole Heshbon area here, it did not always belong to the people Israel just prevailed over. We were just told something very important in verse 26. Heshbon was the city of Sihon who had fought against the former king of Moab. Well, where would that guy have been? Well, Moab is south, right? So Moab used to have ownership of all of this area, including Heshbon. And at time, over time, the Amorites had prevailed over Heshbon. This was their territory. And then the Israelites took it from them. In verse 26, we're told that the Amorites had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken all that land out of his hand. So the reason that Heshbon belonged to the Amorites is because they took it from the Moabites and they sang about it. In verse 27 and following, these ballad singers that we see here, this, uh, let's call it a hymn, this small hymn excerpt was something originally belonging to the mouths of the Amorites celebrating their victory over Moab. And what I picture here, these ballad singers, I, I imagine, uh, you know, like troubadours in the city, okay? People walking around with a cello or a guitar, and they're just in the street corners. And when people walk by and they say, well, let's get a little closer so we can hear what these guys are singing. Well, these are ballad singers who are proclaiming for the people victories of the Amorites over the Moabites. And here's what they say in verse 27. Therefore, the ballad singers say, come to Heshbon, let it be built. Let the city of Sihon be established. See, when Moab fell to the Amorites in this area, the Amorites sang about it with zeal and gusto, put it into verse to make it memorable and publicly proclaimed. And they invited the people to come to Heshbon and build it up as Sihon's city. This is his new capital. This is here, his new place. He's taking one person's name off the desk and his name is put on in the, as a replacement. He is the leader. So let Sihon, be, his city, be established. For in verse 28, fire came out from Heshbon. Heshbon is again that capital. Flame from the city of Sihon. And it devoured Ar of Moab and swallowed the heights of the Arnon. These are, these are just regional places for him to say, not only did we go into the capital and we had victory, we didn't stop there. Our fiery destruction and our victory went beyond that. And these other places exist uh, in a radius around Heshbon. He says, we didn't stop there. We went into the surrounding regions and we conquered. Fire came out. It devoured and swallowed up. This place belongs to us. And then they taunted their enemies. The Amorites must have felt so superior. They must have felt like we have conquered the Moabites. We're going to sing about our triumph. We are invincible. But they should wait. Just let time pass and the purposes of God unfold. They are not so invincible. They did taunt their enemies, though, in verse 29. Woe to you, O Moab. You are undone, O people of Chemosh. He has made his sons fugitives and his daughters captives to an Amorite king, Sihon. The word Moab there is obvious as the region, okay? That's the region that uh, the king of Moab uh, had ruled from. Woe to you, Moab, is a way of saying, 
Poor things have come your way, haven't they? Judgment has arrived at your doorstep. Destruction is in our wake and is now overcoming you. But what does Chemosh mean? You are undone, O people of Chemosh. Chemosh was the most important deity of the Moabites. That means not only are they Moabites, they're the people who serve a particular idol. They are the people of Chemosh. Well, let's see how serving Chemosh Worked for them. How did, that, how did that work out? Well, it says, He, Chemosh, has made his sons, the worshippers, fugitives, and his daughters captives to an Amorite king, Sihon. In other words, Chemosh and all of his people have been humiliated. The Moabites had been overcome by the Amorites, and the God of the Moabites, what could he do about it? Not a thing. Nothing. The people are undone. His people have become fugitives. His worshippers have become captives to an Amorite king. The song finishes up this way in verse 30. So we overthrew them. Heshbon as far as Debon perished. We laid waste as far as Nophah, fire spread as far as Mediba. These are places that don't ring a bell with us as cities or villages that are meaningful. To those readers, to those ancient or eastern folks, these were part of a 20-mile radius around Heshbon. It was again a way of saying the capital fell, the surrounding region was ours, the Moabites were no longer leading in this area. But the ballad singers could only sing that kind of song for so long. Because the Israelites arrived. And Sihon no doubt believed, we've defeated the Moabites. And here Israel wants to pass through our land and says, oh, we won't bother any of your wells or your vineyards. or your. Well, we're just going to pass through. And he's like, well, I see a grand opportunity here. I'm just going to go ahead and conquer them too. And he falls before them. In verse 31, thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. Earlier, they said, we won't touch any of your vineyards. Now all of the vineyards belong to them. Earlier, they said, we won't drink anything out of your well. You know whose wells those are now? They're the Israelites. Sihon had aligned himself against the people of God. And the Lord demonstrated his supremacy over any of the Amorite deities. And earlier, over the Moabite ones. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. And Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Jazer is a, a particular city um, that is north of Heshbon. And in other words, Moses continues to lead the people into victory. It is interesting in verse 32 that Moses sends out spies. You know, that's not always turned out very well when he's done that. Earlier in Numbers 13 and 14, he sent out spies who came back with a bad report and said, we can't go into that land. Well, here he sends out spies. The outcome is different. They capture its villages, which must mean the spies returned with good recon and intelligence. And the Israelite army infiltrated the area and prevailed once more. We are seeing something at the cusp of the promised land that has not characterized Israel's history in the wilderness. And that is Yahweh is giving the enemies into their hands. And Moses is leading them into victory so close to the Jordan River. Joshua will soon lead them over and into victory and conquest. What we're told then is that the Amorites have been dispossessed in this area. When God said to Abraham, all the way back in Genesis 15, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
The reader wonders if what Numbers 21 is showing us is that the time for Israel to prevail over those enemies has indeed arrived. And Sihon's land goes to them. In fact, not only is this a victory in Numbers 21, when the conquest under Joshua happens, tribes of Israel are going to settle in this area. I'll show you this in just a moment. Let's look in verses 33 to 35. We've looked at the disproportionate account, the very long account of the defeat of Sihon. And then the king, of Og, the king named Og. Where is he? Well, he's located in this area, Bashan. And he's associated with this city, Asheroth. He's up there above the Yarmouk River. And here in Bashan, which is quite north, okay? This is not like next door. This is, this is quite north. It says in verse 33, Then they turned and went up by the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against them, and he and all his people to battle at Idraid. The, the reader could no doubt feel a sense of momentum here. Numbers 21 had opened with three verses of a small victory over the king of Arad. Then the rest of Numbers 21 has been unfolding. And we've just seen the Amorites fall to the Israelites. And now we wonder about Og, the king of Bashan. God has been giving victory after victory after victory. The Israelites should trust him. He's fulfilling his promises. He's showing himself faithful and supreme. What do we see here then? Well, Og and his army come out against the people of Israel to battle at this particular location. Here's what we know about Og. First of all, isn't that an amazing name? That's, this is my favorite pagan king in the Bible. I think the name Og is awesome. First of all, it's easy to pronounce, which has something in its favor, because a lot of these things are less easy to pronounce in the book of Numbers. But I can do Og, okay, and so can you. And so here's Og, and he's coming out with this big army, and Og is someone referenced in the book of Deuteronomy when some history is being remembered. Og is a tall king. He is part of a group that, according to Deuteronomy 2, were known as the Rephaim. And they were considered tall, giant-like characters in the ancient Near East. They were intimidating. They were fearsome. Now, I don't mean giants as when we think of something you might have seen in a movie where you have some giant that's like multiple stories tall. No, just think about extraordinarily tall. And according to the book of Deuteronomy, the bed of Og made of iron was over a dozen feet long. So that means within that he slept, but this is an incredibly, extraordinarily tall figure. Og would have intimidated people in the ancient Near East. He was known, we find out in later books of the Old Testament, his reputation as this mighty king who fell to Israel was something people shared and remembered. Og would no doubt approach Israel with the same kind of self-confidence and presumption that the Amorites had approached the Israelites with. Sihon thought, I'll be victorious. Og thinks, I'm going to be victorious. And God says to Moses in verse 34, do not fear him. Now, why might they fear Og? Well, earlier in Numbers 14, the spies had come back with a negative report in the majority. And they said, oh, the people of the Anakim are there. And these giants of the land, these mighty warriors will be destroyed if we go in. 
And what this passage shows is that if Israel is going to defeat its giants, it will never be because they're so strong. It will be because Yahweh gives them the victory. They should have trusted the Lord in Numbers 14. The spies should have believed God's promises instead of saying, we can't do that. When God would say to them, I can do that. That's why my promises are something to hope in. Not because you're able, but because I'm able. And in verse 34, he says to Moses, do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand. He said, wait a second, the battle hasn't happened yet. But it's as good as done. God has decreed it. And so therefore, it is as good as God having given the people into the hand of the Israelites. I've given him into your hand and all his people and his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. They're engaging here in holy war and conquest where these military uh, embattled scenes are pushing against the people of God and the purposes of God, which have been to give the land to the Israelites. These people should worship Yahweh and abandon their idols. And there will be some in the land of Canaan that will do that. In Numbers 21, that does not happen. The Amorites want to destroy Israel and Og and his army want to destroy Israel. And here's what we're told about the Israelites. They defeated him and his sons and all his people. That's pretty thorough. Until he had no survivor left. Why does that matter? Because kings have successors and now Og has none. The the reign of Og in his idolatrous and immoral nation, it will not persist. They fall to the Israelites. The Israelites defeated Og and his sons and people until he had no survivor left. And they possessed the land. Now in this last line, what I want you to notice here. Very, very different uh, artistic rendering, I know, from what we've just seen to this. But the Dead Sea, Jordan River going up to the Sea of Galilee, this belonging to Reuben and Gad, these tribes, this was formerly the land of the Amorites, Sihon's territory. And then Manasseh up here east of the Sea of Galilee, this was the land of Bashan that Og had ruled. And what I want you to notice here is that according to Numbers 21, Israel prevailed over those enemies and that land never again went to those enemies. In the conquest of Joshua, the Israelites inherited the the land. The allotted territories were rightly disseminated by God's direction. And Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh remained in the areas triumphed over in Numbers 21. And that's thinking about a lot of here geographically and timeline wise. But to see the victory over these areas and the settlement of Israel over here shows us the enduring purpose of God. I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon about Sihon and Og. I've never preached one. <laughs> Sihon and Og, you know, they, they come into the narrative here. But what is fascinating about these two kings is while they are mentioned here, and not even in an incredibly long account when you consider all the girth of numbers, they are mentioned after this as part of what would be embedded in Israel's history. There there is no doubt been occasion where you have been in later parts of the Old Testament and you've run across the names Sihon and Og, and you need to know their story. You need to know what happened and why. Here's what we're told. Rahab hears about this in Joshua. In Joshua 2, some spies have come. Rahab is giving them refuge. And Rahab says to the spies, We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. 
before you when you came out of Egypt. And we heard what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og. In other words, Sihon and Og were such important military leaders in the ancient Near East that when they fell, the people of Jericho heard about it and Rahab said, I will follow their God, the God of the Israelites. He is God. She puts it this way. She says, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens. When you read this morning in Numbers 21 about Sihon and his regime falling and Og and his troops falling, let's echo Rahab. Our God is God in the heavens and over the earth. That is exactly what Rahab realized. They should follow him, trust him, hope in him. The Gibeonites say to Joshua in Joshua 9.10 that they had also heard what God did to the two kings of the Amorites beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og of Bashan. Not just in Joshua. If you go to the Psalms, if you go to the Psalms, the Psalms are going to invite us to sing about the defeat of Sihon and Og. You get this first in Psalm 135. In Psalm 135, 8 and following, there's this this, uh, celebration of the power and supremacy of Yahweh. He struck down the firstborn of Egypt. He sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh. He struck down many nations. And then it says, and mighty kings, Sihon king of the Amorites and Og king of Bashan. So even all those centuries later, as they're singing psalms, part of the victory that they're remembering is that. Why? Because in their 40th year of wilderness wandering, and now right next to the Jordan River, the Lord is giving them these victories which are like down payments of the promised land to the forefathers. In other words, they are celebrating the defeat of Sihon and Og because for them it shows God is with them. His power is supreme. His promises will be kept. And they can trust Him. They're trusting the one who brought down Sihon and Og. In Psalm 136, they sing to him who struck down great kings for his steadfast love endures forever. Who struck down Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. Near the very end of the Old Testament era, in the ministry of a man named Nehemiah, Nehemiah says in Nehemiah 9, 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes didn't wear out, their feet didn't swell, and you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon and the land of Og. In other words, friends, when the Lord gives this victory in Numbers 21, they didn't forget it. It was in the historical records that followed. It was in the Psalms of Israel, in the book of Psalms. And near the end of the Old Testament period, Nehemiah was still talking about it. What God did here in Numbers 21 echoed through the rest of their history. Because it shows He is supreme. And it will not be Israel taking that land because they're so clever. It will be because God is faithful. He is faithful. One way to consider it from a zoomed out perspective is that this victory... Victories, plural, I should say. These victories demonstrate the victory of God over the seed of the serpent. In Genesis 3.15, we were promised that a son would come from the line of Eve, a seed of the woman, who would have victory over the serpent. And after Genesis 3, humanity seems to be spiritually divided between those who are serving the Lord and those who oppose the Lord. Those who align themselves, if you will, with the purposes of God and the seed of the woman who would come. And those who are more like the serpent, they would imitate him in their character, minds, and desires, and devotion. They would be like the serpent's seed. 
And over the course of the Old Testament narratives, what we notice is that those who come against the Israelites are like those who are the seed of the serpent who are triumphed over by Yahweh's power. The seed of the serpent manifests this way in Numbers 21. Sihon and the Amorites and Og the king of Bashan represent those aligning against Yahweh. When Yahweh defeats his enemies, we have that promise echoing all the way back from Genesis 3.15 that God will crush the serpent's head. All those little manifestations, these historical armies and these military fortresses, what are they before the God of heaven and earth? There is nothing before him. He will keep all of his promises. He is faithful. We don't have a call from Numbers 21 this morning to go and occupy Heshbon and build it up. When we look at a story like this, which is very far removed, and yet in the fullness of biblical theology and the storyline of Scripture, we recognize that the one who is the seed of the woman has come to have victory over the serpent. Christ did not come to dispossess the Amorites. As impressive as that was in Numbers 21. He didn't come to overcome Og. No, the Virgin Mary gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ so that he would dispossess sin and death and hell. He would overcome the curse and corruption of this age. And he would enter by his incarnation into our very existence, taking on the likeness of human flesh. Coming to overthrow the enemies of sin and hell. To overcome death by his own glorious resurrection. Forget the Ammonites. Jesus said, I build up my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. King of Sihon or King Sihon and King Og, as intimidating as they were, they were worldly and military installments of larger concerns and fears that people can have across time. Fears of economic and political and social upheaval. Personal and more broad than that. The distress and angst that you see in the world. The suffering and death. The vileness of those particular regions and military armies. Their various plans to align themselves against the people of God. Friends, some things have changed, some things stay the same. Where you recognize that in 2022, our pressing need is to hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, who will vindicate his people and overcome all his adversaries, and we can really trust him. You can hope in him. He defeats Sihon and Og. He delivers the land to the Israelites by his own supremacy and power. Will he not uphold us? Will he fail now? Will he now be shown to be unfaithful? Read stories like this instead in Numbers 21 and recognize the Israelites have every reason to trust the Lord. His track record from Numbers forward only gets longer of faithfulness. His steadfast love is only proven more sure and more firm. Friend, this morning you have a friend in Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. And he is the Savior and Redeemer that we need. He is the one promised to overthrow sin and death. Let us hope in Him. Let us trust in Him. Let us worship Him. And let us pray.